Thanks, Jenny. Well, good morning. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and it's great to see you this morning. One of my kids looked at me in 2003 and said, is Harry Potter bad? Which is a normal question, right? We had just driven from Atlanta uh, to Illinois to go spend some time with some of my extended family. And uh, that morning, actually at midnight on that day, Harry Potter Order of the Phoenix was released. And so at 4 a.m., we went to Walmart and bought Order of the Phoenix. And all the way on our drive up north, Becky read in the car that glorious book. So we get to my family and, you know, when you spent, I don't know, seven, eight, nine hours, like kind of like in the world of Hogwarts, you want to talk about it, you know, you're those people suddenly. And so we get to the dinner table and we just, you know, and the kids are talking about it and we start talking about how great they enjoy the literature and, and it's just quiet. And uh, one of my relatives says, we think Harry Potter is witchcraft, which kind of brought an end to the conversation at that point. And we were like, interesting. Can someone pass the green beans? <laughs> and on we went with the rest of our time. So at that night, one of our kids, my kids looked at me and said, hey, um, dad, is, is, is Harry Potter bad? And we got to have this conversation about how, you know what, some people really have a hard time with it because of, these are the reasons why, and it's really difficult. And uh, that, for us, that hasn't been a thing, but, but that's what it means to have a conscience. You're having to actually wrestle with matters of conscience as to whether this is good or, or bad for, for you. And that's a little bit of what's going on in Corinth and Rome at the time of, of Paul's writing as we find ourselves once again, not, not Harry Potter, by the way, but something else. <laughs> not, witchcraft, not witchcraft necessarily, at least probably so. But we're in a series uh, on the Bible uh, that's talking about knowing and telling God's story. And we've spent all year focusing on reading the Bible together and then coming on a given Sunday to talk about a particular text, particular passage that we've read that this particular week. And um, we find ourselves entering, for, in a sense, for the rest of the epistles, kind of a series on the Christian life, some of the key elements surrounding the Christian lives. Uh, Steve spent the last couple weeks talking through some of those foundational elements of being called, of the calling of God, the, the, the justification of God through grace by faith, and, and then the sanctification that he accomplishes. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon on sanctification, it is fantastic. It's one of the most clarifying pieces on that topic. But today we enter a new topic or a, a, a kind of a nuanced element related to Christian freedom or conscience. So this morning, we're going to kind of focus there. The, the context that we're coming out of in Romans uh, 14 and also in 1 Corinthians 10 and 8 is really like this, this idea of like there's these, there's these sacrificing idol temples that get some of the best meat, and then they go and they sell it in the marketplace. And Christians are trying to figure out, well, hold on. I used to be a pagan, but now I, I'm buying meat. Is it okay if I'm buying meat if it got sold to, a, if it was sacrificed to an idol? But I don't really believe in idols, but do I believe in idols? And what does this mean? And so the early church is wrestling with this area. And this is what Paul steps into in both of those particular books. And so that's some of what we heard um, Jenny read was a, a particular passage here. So let's, let's talk about three, this, uh, this topic under three topics. One is, uh, what is conscience? Two, who is responsible for our conscience? And thirdly, how do we live out and relate on matters of conscience? And we'll spend the bulk of our time there. But let's begin just talking about what 
is conscience. Well, I think one of the helpful ways of thinking about conscience is something that Al Mohler brought up as it relates to theology, and that would be theological triage. Um, there's a recent book that um, Ray Orlung kind of brought out that's called, I can't remember the name of the book, Finding Something. Finding the Important Things in an Unimportant Time or something like that. It's a better title than that. But he kind of also talks about these three concepts. And basically, we're talking about theological triage. Imagine a doctor coming on a scene and being like, okay, so you're bleeding out the neck, you're bleeding out the leg, you have a headache, right? That's kind of the triage we're talking about. That's not quite exactly so, but that's basically kind of what we're talking about. And so we think of under three particular headings, if you will, when we talk about the importance or the weight of certain areas of theology and of practice. So we think about the first one would be kind of the, the, the doctrine of what we call the doctrines of first orders or the essentials, if you will, of the gospel itself and the, the essentials of what it means to be a Christian. Kind of like if you don't believe these things, well, you're not really a Christian then. You're, you're something else. Like if you don't believe in God, well, then you're not a Christian, right? If you don't believe in the Trinity, which is a clearly Christian doctrine particularly, so then, then you're not really a Christian, right? So these would be central core essentials. In practice, that would be like, hey, the Ten Commandments, like don't murder. Yeah, that's not negotiable. But that's actually like straight through. Do not murder. So those would be the first order elements. Then you have second order elements, which we call the, the urgent ones, right? And this is, this is areas of health and practice for local church, in a sense. It's, it's what you believe about these doctrines that it doesn't, basically, it, it determines whether or not, not so much that you're a Christian or not, but whether or not you're going to be able to be in communion with other people who kind of think these things are significant or not significant. Areas of like things like, uh, like church leadership, the way church leadership is set up, or, or, or baptism. For some people, it's a, a second-order matter. If, you, if you're a paedo-baptist versus someone who, who cares about immersion baptism, those kinds of things could be a big deal, and it's difficult to be able to be in a community of faith with people that, that maybe thinks fundamentally differently in that direction. Or potentially areas, we talked about this a couple years ago, about the roles of men and women in the church. That could be a fundamental area where it's like, you know what, we just don't see eye to eye, and, and we're all Christians, but we're just not going to be in the same community of faith. This is where denominations come from, right? Where particular churches have particularization. So that's kind of a second order dynamic. And then you come to the third order, the third order dynamics. That's really what we're going to be focusing on this morning. And these are things that are important in Christian theology or, or practice, but they're they're not important to justify like, like us not being able to be in the same building or worship together. It's things like the style of worship or what we should wear or things around like, I don't know, certain nuances of end time theology. Like if you look at even our elder board, like we have, we hold multiple areas of nuance in theology that are not primary or even secondary matters. And so we can abide, we can worship together, we can, we can lead a church together. And that's true of, of us. And so there's always a continuum, right? There's this continuum that we're all on. And, and when it comes to this area of third place doctrines where they're important or third place practices, they're important, but they're not worth splitting over. They're not worth being in another building over, being in another denomination over. This is where the matters of conscience land, where Christian freedom lands. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25, Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. So, so when you go to the market and someone brings you, don't, don't ask where it came from. Just, 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 you can eat, you're free to eat it on the grounds of conscience. Don't, just don't raise questions about it because everyone has a conscience. And here, so here's the definition of conscience, which is brought up that, that word is about 30 times in the New Testament. 
And sometimes it's referencing like, you know, someone searing their conscience. Other times it's having a, a good and open, pure conscience. So it has multiple uh, implications. But definitionally, the conscience is, listen, your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong. It's your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong. And that's where the problem comes in, right? This is where all the trouble comes. Because you've been around long enough, turns out that not everything is super clear cut. So that everyone, of course, would just believe the same thing or hold to the same principles. But you already knew that. So we're going to do a little exercise, a little audience participation. Let's talk through some of the areas of conscience that you know of in our culture, not just church. I'm actually talking like broader culture elements with the, as a Christian. What are some of the areas of conscience that you are personally have to wrestle with on either side? What are those? What do those look like? I got a list, but I want to hear from you. What you got? Give me one. Being vaccinated. Being, being vaccinated. Okay, we were going to get there, but why are we starting there? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows it, Jenny. Gosh. Yeah, so being vaccinated, or I don't know, I don't know, let's go with wearing masks, right? We could go there. That, that's, that's been kind of a real thing in both directions, right? Yeah, so that was a matter of conscience, absolutely. What else? Alcohol. Alcohol, classic, classic alcohol, absolutely. I, in some, right, some contexts, it's like to, to drink is to be spiritual. If you can't drink, what's wrong with you, right? Or, or in other contexts, it's like, no, why would I be, I'm, I'm a self-controlled person. Why would I put myself, my, set myself up for something that could take me in a bad direction, right? So absolute matters of conscience. Alcohol, that's a big one. What else? What else you got? Music, music absolutely. Harry music, <laughs> the Harry Potter music in particular, yes. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Lyrics and music, style of music, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Politics, yeah. Politics in general have a kind of a clear cut dynamic. Honestly, we just ran through the vote, right? I mean, we all got to see what happened. Everyone was like, no, you, you can't be a Christian and vote this, right? And of course, both sides were saying the same thing, right? So everyone was saying the same thing. You can't be a Christian and, or you must be, a, if you're a Christian, you must blank, right? Matters of conscience. What else? What's that? Oh, yes, television and movies. Yep, nudity, violence. How much nudity? How much violence, right? Everyone's like, everyone knows, like, pornography would, that would fall into the, like, first things category. No one's going like, that's great, I'm free to, no. But, but then there's nuance, right? Everything becomes a sliding scale. For some, there's no sliding scale whatsoever. There is none. Yeah, so language, yep, violence, all those things. Video games, too, play in that category, probably. What else you got? Tattoos. Tattoos. Kim, I think he wants a tattoo. I'm just saying, yeah. Um, absolutely tattoos. That used to be a really big deal, particularly like 10, 15 years ago. It was like everyone was getting tattoos. Anyway, I just had a conversation with someone last week about tattoos, so indeed. Tattoos, taboos. What else you got? Anything else? Any other areas that have hit you in particular in your growing up experience or? Yes, public schooling, private schooling, homeschooling. One is, one is actually theologically correct, the other two are fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and you can talk to J Street about which one that is after, <laughs> after the sermon. <laughs> Birth control methodology, fertility, right? Fertility treatments be significant areas of contention. Halloween, see previous Harry Potter moments. Smoking. 
You, know, you guys know C.S. Lewis smoked? And, and we quote him? <laughs> like, a decent amount, actually? Teenagers, you didn't hear that? That's not a real Justin, no, I'm just kidding. So those are clear matters, right? And, and, and those are matters for us as believers. If you're here and this is like your first time engaging with Christian things, you're like, this may sound strange, right? Why, why are we even having conversations around some of these things? But they really matter and people land in fundamentally different places related to this. And so what are, just a quick, I just wanna put a quick guideline on, so what are some of the limitations of conscience according to the scriptures? One is very clear. Paul talks about it here in 1 Corinthians. Is if it violates your conscience, you're sinning. It's clean, clean as day. He's saying if you're violating your conscience and you know it, you're sinning. So that would be a box around your conscience. If you know it, it's, you're convicted by it, it's conscience. That's a box. Obviously, any sin that goes contrary to what the scriptures would dictate or, or clarify or c- command, any, any straight, you know, again, like the Ten Commandments piece. That's not a question mark as to whether or not, well, I have the freedom to steal. Like, that's not a question. Adultery is cool for me. And of course, it would include what's probably legal to do in light of some of the other implications of Scripture. But one of the ones that we're going to hit on actually pretty, pretty consistently at the end here is, is the idea of if you're not loving your brother, that's a box on your freedom. If you're not loving your sister, that's a box on your freedom. That's a, that's a limitation of the kind of conscious decisions you get to make. So just got a little tighter. Do you feel it? Well, it got tighter, but also there's a reason for that. So let's talk a little bit about who is responsible for our conscience. Who's responsible for your conscience? There's a book by uh, Andy Nacelli and uh, J.D. Crowley called Conscience. Uh, what is it? How, it? how to train it? And uh, loving those who differ. And uh, they, they did a great job, honestly, they published in 2016, did a really great job kind of articulating multiple pieces of this. Uh, I have some really good examples actually to come uh, from them. But just, um, they talk about the idea that your, your conscience being is, is a gift from God. Like it comes from him. And, and it gives this great kind of first principle of conscience, and that is that the giver of your conscience is also the Lord of your conscience. The giver of your conscience is also the Lord of your conscience. So God is the only one who is Lord of your conscience. We are to care about what's right and what's wrong because God gave us and made us as moral beings that are accountable to him. And so even though it's our conscience, we are not Lord of it. We are not supreme of it. God is. But our conscience is also uniquely ours. And Paul makes this crystal clear, as we'll see. Since no, con- no, no two consciences are alike in every single respect, which is, by the way, super hard for some of you that are like really like black and white thinkers, like J temperaments on the Myers-Briggs. Like you want to know, just is it right or is it wrong? Just tell me. And I meet with some of you sometimes, and you're like, no, seriously, I just need to know which one's the right one. It's difficult, right? If it was just clear, clear cut on some of these elements, if we could just always land here, we would, we would know. We don't like the gray. And so I just want to invite you, if this is where you are today, even just to lean into that discomfort. There is no box on some of these pieces. And I know you want one. I know you think you need one. And sometimes you make one because you want one. And for some of us, our, our default is always, you know what, just know. 
And Paul would invite us into, into a different and other way. So new, no two believers have the exact same conscience. That's why Romans 14 is so helpful. But the truth is, is that, and, and this is what God needs to burn into our hearts, um, is that no Christian has a conscience that matches God's will. Now, I know some of us think that our conscience matches God's will perfectly, but that is not the case. God has a conscience and he has a will, but ours is not perfectly matched to his. No, none of us do. No one's conscience perfectly matches his will. In a fallen world, our conscience is sometimes seared, and at other times we become overly sensitive, and it just depends on what. What we're tempted to believe is that Orthodox Christianity looks like me, like, like my grid, like my, my shape, my set of, that's what it means to be a true Christian. The key thing that we see here in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, is that each believer must be fully convinced of their position on their own conscience. Like every one of us needs to be fully convinced of our position on these matters, on our conscience. Listen to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. There's not special days. Everything's the same. No, there's some special days. We should do special things. Each one, listen, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What this removes the possibility of, which is the third way escape, right, is, you know what, I just don't want to think about that. That seems complicated and maybe controversial, so I just don't want to, I don't have to figure it out. I'm just going to, like, let other people figure it out, and depending on how I feel on that day, that's kind of where I'm going to lean, or depending on who's more powerful in the room, I might go with them. And Paul would say, no, each one must determine in his own mind, in his own heart, first greatest principle of conscience is that God is the Lord of our conscience. The second is that we, we must obey our conscience, Paul says. God didn't give us a conscience so that we ignore it or that we disobey it. This doesn't mean that our conscience is always right, by the way. Our conscience may actually be twisted. It could be, it could be rooted, in, honestly, in an immoral um, Standards, things that we've drawn in from our family of origin, from our context, or from our culture. And retraining is necessary. Just becoming a Christian doesn't suddenly turn your conscience into the mind and heart of God. And so there must be retraining, what called recalibrating, in order to align our consciences more with the reality of Scripture, of who God is, of what He has, and His standards for us. So as we recalibrate our conscience, which, by the way, takes real time, we do so by orienting our hearts and our minds and taking our conscience and laying it before the scriptures and saying, Lord, these are the principles that you're laying out. How does my conscience work in light of that? How do I follow you faithfully in light of what I'm seeing, the parameters, which is one of the reasons why we spend a year in the word on purpose to be able to say, what's God like? How do I take my matters of conscience in light of who I see him being in the scriptures? 
So we take, our, we, we take our recalibration from the word absolutely, and then we take it from areas outside of the word, from things like, like scientific learnings or, or things that we didn't understand worked a certain way before, but now we've been educated on them. And so we now know how to move effectively in them. From the wisdom of other people who've lived and who've maybe failed, and they help us see and they help move and shift our conscience towards what is good and true, better, improved. Conscience sometimes just takes undue misinformation and we need it to be rectified. So we need this regular recalibration, but as our conscience is honed, the principles hold that we must obey our conscience. We can't, simply can't keep just, just shunning or shying away from the reality of what God is laying, laying on our hearts, moving in our souls about. We must become fully convinced of our present, present position on areas like the ones we just talked about. But not just that we land somewhere, but why you land there. Oftentimes what we've, what we've done, this is the most natural thing, is we find ourselves just going to whoever makes the better argument. But, but we haven't gone and done the work ourselves to know why am I actually choosing this? Is it because it was just really convincing? He just did a really good job? His, or he's just a great orator? The why matters. You have to land somewhere on these issues. You really do. You have to make decisions. But why you land there is just as important as, if not sometimes more, as where you land. So we must be thoughtful. So I think the simple, simple question right now as we talk, is, are, is there anywhere in your life that you're violating your conscience? That, that you have been? For, for approval, for, for the accolades or the praise of parents or, or someone who has influence or power? Have you said yes when you actually internally knew it was no? And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking sinning behavior, we're talking areas of freedom and conscience. It always starts with us, right? It starts with ourselves. So now, how, how do we live this out? Most of what Paul deals with in this passage is about how we relate to one another in light of areas of conscience. So how do we do this? Well, you know, human nature and us being human nature beings as we are, there's kind of like this um, stricter group that always attempts and always is always tempted to, to judge those who are too free, right? And they call themselves Christians. And then there's another group, right? The free group who tends to look down on those with unnecessary restrictions as those poor, bound-up legalists. The good news is that Paul, and the Lord through Paul, condemns both dispositions. Dispositions that take and that make a, have a significant on breeding disunity within the church. But disunity is not the only danger that we see here. Arrogance and overconfidence on those that we consider stronger, it makes us ripe for the kind of sin, sin all you want permissive kind of theology. And meanwhile, judgmentalism becomes the norm for those with stricter believing tendencies, leaning towards legalism. 
But in Romans 14, Paul offers multiple directions to ensure that not only the strict consciences of the weak, which is what he calls the weak, they would be respected, but it also allows for the, the legitimate freedoms of those who are strong. So let's take a look at how he does that. Starting from verse 1 of Romans 14, Paul says, Welcome those who disagree with you. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, by now, you, you probably have put yourself in either the strong conscience or, or the weak conscience box. My experience is that most people on opposite sides of the spectrum all put themselves in the strong box. That's, most, that's what I tend to do. I'm like, oh. on this side, I feel like, man, on this side, yeah, pretty much I'm always the strong one. And that's typically where we go, right? Because we have reasons for why we've landed somewhere. And the other people, if they just knew, they would, you know, come and join us. The fact is, on most issues, we're probably both the weak and the strong. At the same time, because candidly, in comparison to others at all times, we're probably a little bit more and a little bit less. There's always people to the left and to the right on any given disputable matter, and this means that depending on the situation, God will call us to obey God's call, his exhortation to both the weak and the strong for us. But his first exhortation here is stay connected. He says, welcome the person who's on the other side of the spectrum. Welcome them, even if you disagree. Welcome, make room for people who think other than you on these issues. Now, the idea of us as a people making room for other people to be on opposite sides of issues, it sounds like heaven. It certainly seems so far from so much of the way in which we're posturing currently. And the invitation that Paul says is, welcome each other. It's, 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 it's words of hospitality. Can we be hospitable towards one another? We're in opposite directions and disagreement. On the second section, Romans chapter 14, verse 3, he goes on and says, let not the one who eats despise or literally treat with contempt. Let not the one who eats, so this would be the strong person, right? Let not them treat with contempt the one who abstains. Principle there is that those who have freedom of conscience in a particular arena must not look down on those who don't. It's always the temptation of the strong, right? To look down and despise those sad, strict legalists. Paul condemns that attitude of superiority, and it's an invitation of a heart check. Because here's the thing. Most of what this looks like shows up in our hearts, and then it comes out with our safe people. It's the rolling of the eyes. It's the, can you believe? Paul says there's no room for that. So those who have freedom of conscience, they must not look down on those who don't, but then he flips it. And let not the ones who abstain pass judgment, literally be judgmental towards the ones, the one who eats. See, everybody's getting it here. There's a looking down of like, if you are just more free, 
then you can have a beer with us. You could watch this movie. You're seriously not going to come with us if you were just more free. And yet the flip side is like, don't pass judgment on someone who's saying, you know what, I, I, I'm free to do this. I'm going to go ahead and go and I'm going to watch and I'm going to. It's always the temptation of those who are, have a weaker conscience on particular issues to pass judgment on the liberals. And what, why are these attitudes wrong? How does Paul make the argument of why this is, this is poor thinking or, or broken reasoning? He gives two reasons. Right at the end of verse 14, he says, God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. Are you better than God? Are your standards higher than God? Are you higher in understanding than the Lord? Because the Lord has welcomed him. And so you too welcome him. Welcome her. That's reason one. Are you holier than God? And the answer, of course, is no. But verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Paul's other argument by saying you don't judge and you don't look down on is like you're not the master of your other of, of the believing friend, the believing neighbor. That's you're not their master. There is a master, and it is not you. So don't look down. Don't cast judgment on. You're not their master. I'm not saying that these third-level areas aren't important. We're saying that it's actually significant that we can disagree with them, and that means doing so in all kinds of ways with what we talk about, with what we post. There's two conditions to that, right? It's a right spirit and a right proportion. Third thing we see here is verse 6 through 9. This is, this is amazing. Assume, this is Paul saying that you need to assume that others are partaking or abstaining for the glory of God. Listen to what he says. He says, the one who abstains, I'm sorry, the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live to himself and none of us dies to himself. Do you hear the generosity that, that Paul extends to both sides? He's, he's saying, based on what I can see, there's freedom and freedom. There's freedom not to and there's freedom to. And so I'm just going to assume, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that, that, that these brothers and these sisters are actually choosing so to glorify God which is later on he'll actually declare that that's, that's how you know. Whether you eat or you drink, do so to the glory of God. doesn't matter. Do it to the glory of God. And Paul's generosity of spirit, I mean, again, just imagine if that was the, if that was the case, right? If in, in everything that we disagree on, and we disagree on all kinds of stuff in this room, on the way you parent things, on the way you discipline, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we disagree with. Imagine if we, it was generosity that says, I'm not, I'm curious, tell me a little bit about how, how you've walked this through so that you can do this to the, to the glory and honor of God. I'd, I'd love to hear that and understand, not to prove or win an argument, but genuinely to understand their movement with God as to how they're glorifying God. And what if we're like, 
It sounds like this is a real move of faith on your part. Like, I can hear that you're trusting him. Can you imagine how it would buoy us? That we'd be good enough and, and, and clear enough and understanding enough to actually be able to articulate why they've chosen that and maybe even to celebrate it, even if in a million years that is not at all what we would do? Because that's what Paul does in the Bible. That's what the church is supposed to look like. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so, whatever, so whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Next in verse 10 to 12, Paul says, don't, don't judge each other in these matters because someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Listen to this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What if we thought more about our own situation and how our, in our own situation we're going to give account to God for what we're choosing or not than about making sure that someone else who's choosing something different is going to give account to us. You don't have to worry about it. You know that? God's got this. He's also got you. you, you we will all stand and have to go like, yeah, yeah, this was freedom, right? Oh, it wasn't. I was not listening to you. Ah, right? I mean, that, or this was freedom. Oh, it was in honor of you. I, okay, I actually was hearing you rightly, and I was listening, and I was faithful. But don't worry about other people. It's a matter of conscience. Don't worry about it. The Lord is the judge. Next, your freedom to eat. Paul says is correct. So interestingly, he passes a judgment on it. He actually says, you know, you can't eat, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of your weaker brother. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. This is Paul talking about his sense, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, which is the law of love. By what you eat, do you do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, the, the free and strict Christians in, in a church, free and the strict, both have responsibilities, right? And everything we talked about so far really apply to both. But, but here, starting in, in, in verse 13, Paul starts shifting the conversation over to those who would call themselves strong, those who have freedom, who would say, yes, I don't think an idol is anything, so I can just eat the meat, since an idol is just a stick that's been carved. It's just meat. It's like, yeah, it's just meat. But there's a higher law. The second half of 14, the bulk of the responsibility falls on the stronger conscience. And one obvious reason 
that they claim that they're strong. And so God, so, so Paul is saying, great, then bear with the weaknesses of the weak. For, that's chapter 15, verse 1. If, you, if you're strong, then you, that's great. You can actually bear up with their weaknesses then. Not only that, but of the two groups, only the strong have the choice. In third level matters, like meat or holy days or wine, they're the only ones who have the choice to either partake or to abstain. But in matters of conscience, the weaker brother or sister are the ones, they don't have a choice. They, they must abstain. So they have one choice. So technically, they have one choice, and the strong have two choices. And what Paul's saying is, hey, this is great news. You're strong. You have two choices. They have one choice. So choose the choice that's going to serve them if it's going to cause them to stumble. It's a great privilege for the strong to have double the choices of the weak. They must use that gift wisely see how their, conscience, how their choices affect the sensitive consciences of their brothers and sister. Concern here is not merely for our freedoms, that our freedoms not irritate. By the way, this is, there's a, there is a distinction. If our, if our freedoms are just irritating or annoying someone, or, or they find themselves just offended, like, this, this offends me then that, that's, that's not the weaker brother, okay? Like, we could fundamentally disagree on something, and that doesn't mean either one of us is the weaker brother. Because you feel fine in your conscience, I feel fine in my conscience. I'm like, cool, I wouldn't do that that way, but that's fine, you do you. Neither one of us is the weaker brother. And so we theoretically would have the freedom to abstain or to, to partake, whatever that would be. Now, we're talking about when the freedom of the stronger brother may be, or sister, may be that which causes them to fall, to stumble. It's when our practice of freedom leads them to sin against their own conscience. They're harming themselves. So how do we use our freedom to bring spiritual life, not spiritual harm to professing believers? Well. But pay attention. And I, I just want to say as an aside, it is a really vulnerable thing to acknowledge the ways in which we're, the weak, we're weaker in conscience, we're the weaker brother and sister. It's actually really vulnerable to be like, you know, I have like real struggles with, if, if there's alcohol at a party, then all I can think about is the alcohol. My friend of mine, that's the case. He's like, it takes up all the room and it takes up all the space in the room. And I just, and so, if we're going to be doing something, if we could not, that would just be a gift to me. You know how vulnerable that is? To say, yeah, I can't handle it. And I still want to be, I'm a spiritual, alive person. It's actually a very honest place to be, but it's wildly vulnerable. To be able to acknowledge the ways in which we see ourselves as the weaker brother or sister. But that's precisely the place in the context wherein we can work that out together. Like, you know, I won't go into this much, but like, you know, we have, like, we have an alcohol policy at our church, right? We have about how we use it, where it is, where it can be, and all that stuff. So we have one of those, um, which you'd like, if you'd like it, I'm more than glad to email it to you. But one of the places where, um, so like if we're having an event, we have a no alcohol policy at an event. If it's an RCC-sponsored event. 
But those of you who are in community groups, at your community groups, like that's an open context. Yes, I guess it's kind of like an RCC-sponsored context, but that's the space where you should be working out these kinds of things. So my question would be, those of you who are in community groups, those of you who are in committed communities, are you working out these kinds of things? Are you letting your conscience be seared? Are you letting your conscience be, be bent? Are you sinning against your own conscience? I mean, just alcohol, it could be other things. It'd be really courageous. It'd be something fun to like, talk about a risk to be able to say, hey, I'm actually having a really tough time with this. It's, it's causing me to go bad places. That's what people have who feel free to use language, and I'll say language, in ways that express like a new, t a different tier of frustration or anger or whatever. For other people, that really is difficult for them. It actually undoes them or makes... So which is right? Well, some would say, well, here's, here's four verses that tell you what's right or wrong. In many ways, there's some, real leaven, there's some real space there to figure that out. So the question is, are you working that out in community? Are you working that out with your friends? Are you, are you curious with one another? This is what it means to live this out. Lastly, the second half of verse 22. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Listen to verse 14, verse 22. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Now, this, this said this is not like saving faith, right? This is the, the faith that gives you confidence in your conscience, okay? So this is... But that faith that you have, that confidence you have in your conscience, either way, don't flaunt it. Don't flaunt your opinion, your perspective. This applies equally to the strong and to the weak. Don't flaunt it or don't show off. If you're free, don't show off that you can. If you're strict, find your, don't, don't police. Instead, allow for the Spirit of God to move in one another. The principle of Christian freedom is, is not I always get to do what I want to do. And it's not I always have to do what other people want me to do. The principle of Christian freedom is that I do what brings glory to God. And, and I do what, what brings others to be influenced by the gospel in their lives in whatever context. And I do what brings peace and unity to the church to the people of God. That's what I do. That's what Christian freedom looks like. And it's, it's real freedom. And it's real life for each other. And so the question is, how do we become the kind of people who are going to take something that is freedom to us and lay it down for another? Be curious enough to even be able to understand what it means and look, how are we gonna become those kinds of people? Well, Paul helps us. He, he points us to Jesus. He says we will, because the reality is that we will only lay down our rights, not as we see Jesus be an example for us, but as we see him doing so for us. 
as we, as we like take in the reality that he put down his rights for you, lay them down fundamentally, completely. He was completely free. Listen to verse one through three of Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now just imagine, let's insert Christ Jesus the Lord. The Lord Christ Jesus our Lord who is strong gave himself an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, which is all of us, and not to please himself. And so let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me, which is what this meal reminds us of. We'll never become free people. We'll never be the kind of people who hold our freedoms loosely until we see Christ being the one who said, I'll put down all my freedoms for you. We have to see it. We have to know it. It has to get inside. And one of the things that this meal is, is the reminder that that actually has already taken place. That it's the truest thing about us. That we worship a God who laid down so that we could be free, free. Because he loved us. Because he would die for us. So let us be those kinds of people because we see and know the one who has done so for us. Let's be the kind of community that would draw in the eyes of others and say, wow, they disagree amazingly well. May that be the testimony of the church of Christ. May it be the testimony of this church to the praise of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, With a topic like this, there's like, it, it seems like it can raise almost as many questions as it seeks to answer. And I just thank you for, for the clarity of Paul's um, particulars and how you led him to help us try and understand principles that would invite us to then work them out together. And Lord, we wanna do that. We wanna be free men and women, the kind of people who, because we see you, because we know you, we find ourselves free to be able to like open-handedly move towards, love well, be curious, and choose our own freedoms for the sake of your glory. So Lord, right now we take all the things that are ours and we say they're not ours anymore, they belong to you. All our freedoms, we lay them down and we say, Lord, are any of these not to your glory? Lord, we look at our relationships and we say, Lord, is there anywhere in our lives that we find ourselves being able to say, no, for me, I want mine, it's my right. And you're inviting us to say, no, lay down your rights. So, Lord, we want to become more and more of those kinds of people. Would you do so in us by the power of your spirit, to the praise of your name? Change us, we pray. Make us more like yourself. Make your church radiant. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this meal is for you. It's the remembrance. It's the beauty and the power of the gospel in the elements. So come forward and receive the grace of Jesus in the body and blood of Christ.